Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Welcome to A Better Peace. I'm Andrew Hill, and today I am pleased to be joined by Professor Jacob Shapiro of Princeton University, where he is the Professor of Politics and International Affairs, and he's been on the faculty since 2008. Uh, He joined the faculty after receiving his PhD in political science from Stanford University. He's the author of numerous articles exploring connections between violence, poverty, information, and many other topics. He's also the president and chief scientist of Giant Oak Incorporated, which provides advanced search technologies to help institutions with, among other things, challenging searches such as background investigations. So federal government there, I'm sure, is a good client. Um, And then uh, the author of The Terrorist Dilemma, Managing Violent Covert Organizations, published by Princeton University Press, and most recently of Small Wars, Big Data, The Information Revolution in Modern Conflict, with Eli Berman and Joseph Felter, also published by Princeton University Press. Jacob, welcome to the War Room Podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew, and thank you for the kind introduction. Yes. Well, I could have gone on. Your, your CV is like 17 pages long, <laughs> which was made me feel really depressed about myself, but, you know, we'll just set that aside. Um, so so uh, the... The book, Small Wars, Big Data, just published in June, is that right? Yes, it came yes. out in June. Awesome. So uh, in the publisher's description, it, it says this about your book. It says, Small Wars, Big Data presents a transformative understanding of contemporary con- confrontations and how they should be fought. That is, that is a major like, claim. So can you tell me a little bit about that? So what, what does the book tell us, essentially, about how we should fight these small wars? Uh, Andrew, it's a great question. And you know, to be fair, part of that is like public relations. Of course, language, it's marketing. Is marketing, but yeah. I, I think. But there's something to that, you know. There, there is, <laughs> and I think, I think what there is to it is part of the book came out of Ellie, Joe, and I spending a lot of time in 2005, 2006, 2007, working on issues around conflict and looking at the policy debates about conflict and the wars that were being fought in Afghanistan and Iraq and Israel and Palestine and other places, and looking at the discourse and feeling like it was grounded in an understanding of conflict, which drew on intuitions from wars between roughly equal powers, where the idea that people had in the back of their head was something like, if you bring more power and apply it more intelligently and control more and more territory, you're going to get the political outcome that you want. And that struck us as the wrong way to think about these conflicts. It struck us as the wrong way to think about them, both because if you look at conflict after conflict, that didn't match the recollections of the people fighting in asymmetric conflicts, and it didn't match our intuition from being involved in them in the various military organizations that we served in. And so we started trying to take a deeper look at this, first starting with data from the Iraq War, and trying to understand there what was the relationship between the billions of dollars that the U.S. government was putting in aid money into the country and the combat outcomes that we were seeing. So what, what are sort of the key conclusions that you reach? So I think the most important one is that fundamentally in asymmetric conflicts, the struggle is over information that comes from the population. And this is different than the traditional hearts and minds view in the sense that 
there, the way it's articulated in some of the doctrine that came out of the wars of the 60s and 70s and in U.S. doctrine more recently is about winning over legitimacy and kind of the minds of the, the mass of the people. So we persuade them in that model. We persuade them in that model, and we have to persuade the majority to come on side with the government that we're supporting, or, or if it's the government itself that's executing with the government. And when we looked at these conflicts, what, what we saw and what the combatants reported is it wasn't that you needed the mass of people to come over to the government side to change the dynamics. You needed a few people who happened to have information on what the rebels were doing to share that information. So it was a few people on the margin not getting that mass over to support the government. That's not legitimacy. That's a preference for who controls the territory tomorrow night or the next month or the next year. That's not about, I believe, the government has some legitimate claim to authority over me. And so if you start to think about it in that way, uh, you shift the kinds of things that you think you should be doing to win over the population. So you step out of thinking about these big-picture issues of governance or big-picture development initiatives that are going to fundamentally reshape the society so that people shift their allegiance in a very deep way. You start thinking about more granular, small-scale actions, which make it a little bit better for people to help the government tonight or tomorrow night than it was in the past. And then those things enable you to get a little bit of information, which facilitates operations against the rebels, and that reduces the risk to the population, and you get the virtuous cycle of gradually developing control. Now, where that breaks down is that is a paradigm which seems to work for controlling a village or a valley. It's not a paradigm for getting the political goals that you want at the end of the day. And so the way we end the book is basically by saying, look, we've just spent you know, 300 pages helping you understand how to fight in these wars so that you can win those villages and those valleys, now let's step back and ask a slightly different question, which is how do you roll those up to accomplishing the political goals which motivated the war in the first place? And that is a, just a different kind of question. And so we kind of try to end on this note of caution, which is to say don't confuse your ability to do the first thing in terms of winning the village or the valley for your ability to do the ultimate goal, which is getting a political settlement that's favorable. Yeah, you know, when I ask students here at the War College, um, sort of what are the victory conditions uh -huh. in Afghanistan for the United States? And this is a group, many of, many of our students have served there, several deployments, right? They, they think about this a lot. And I got to tell you, we, we, we don't get many really good, concise answers to that question. So th there is this potentially a disconnect between tactical success and understanding what we're trying to achieve at the strategic level, besides just sticking around. Absolutely. And the way I try and talk about this with my students and when I do lectures on this is to think about your theory of political change. And do you have a theory of change by which you can roll up those victories at the local level into a national level settlement? And if you do then engagement in these kinds of conflicts strategically makes sense because there seems to be an approach to winning at the local level that works, and you can cost it out, and you can figure out how much it's going to take to control how much territory and then implement that. But if you don't have that theory of political change which links those victories to the national outcome, then it doesn't make sense as a strategy to get involved because there's no obvious translation function yeah. there. You know, the, the example I like to think about a lot here is Colombia and the ultimate political settlement that they've finally, it looks like, achieved with the FARC, with their, their leftist insurgent group. And one way to tell the story of Colombia is that 
between 2002 and 2005, they got a couple things right in how they fought the asymmetric conflict. They got, with U.S. taxpayer help, mobility assets that let them reach out into the jungle and access the areas where the FARC uh, were hiding so they could take advantage of the information they were getting from civilians. And they got the right-wing paramilitaries under control so that um, the people who had information on the rebels were found the government somewhat less objectionable and so started to share more information. And then what they did is they won a series of local victories which pushed the FARC far enough out into the jungle that they weren't a threat to the normal functioning of society anymore. And then they sat on the conflict for more than a decade. And the FARC leadership got old, and the Colombian voters um, began to care less about the time that the FARC were shelling the presidential inauguration in Bogota. And everyone was willing to reach a deal in 2017 that never would have been acceptable to either side five years before. And so there, the, the theory of political change, by which local victories led to a national settlement, was basically push the fight out into the periphery and sit on it. Yeah, let things cool down. Exactly. Let the emotions ebb. Exactly. And that's, a, that's one way in which winning the local fights can help you get a good settlement to the big national fight. Has your perspective informed operations by the U.S. and its allies, do you think? Do you see evidence of that? So um, it has in some very granular ways uh, in that my co-author, Joe Felter, was a direct report to General McChrystal and General Petraeus at ISAF in 2010 and 11. And so some of the things that we were working with on fed directly into decisions that were made at, at those stages. And we actually had some researchers who went over and spent time helping out uh, ISAF doing work. And then I've spent some time later doing some work uh, back in the States analyzing data from the conflict in ways that fed in. I think the, the deeper way in which it has influenced things is actually in, um, in terms of sensitizing a number of people to the idea that you don't need to do the big thing to get a big change. And so, for example, um, if you look at the way uh, U.S. aid and um, the U.S. military are now thinking about using development assistance in stabilization contexts. They just released this new thing called the Stabilization Assistance Review, which was a coordinated product between state, DOD, and U.S. aid on how to use the non-military tools in stabilization contexts. And the big thing that they pushed in that review is to think about aid and the various non-kinetic tools that we have as a method of creating political incentives for local actors not as a way to change fundamentally the economics of the society or the relations between different uh, ethnic groups. And that is a, that's a sea change from the way people were thinking about it in 2008, 2009. And so I'd like to think that the work that we've done over the years engaging with aid and DOD and state and showing them lots of research which suggested doing the big things wasn't necessarily the right thing to do, that that may have had some effect on that process. Yeah, this idea of virtuous cycles, you used that term uh -huh. earlier, where small changes um, that you apply persistently sort of accrete over time right. and yield significant change. Is that, in terms of the intellectual heritage of that idea, is, is that similar to Wilson's stuff on broken windows? Is it similar to that? or So I think it's similar to that in that it's, an, it's informed by a view of interactions where there's there are different equilibrium for how people can react. And, and when I say equilibrium, technically what I mean is um, 
you know, the situation where everyone's doing the best thing they can given what everyone else is right. doing. And when you think about social interactions as having, uh, being a response to equilibrium, what you can have is a small change, uh, like an apparently small change, which just shifts you from one equilibrium to another. So in Wilson's story about broken windows, the small change is you fix these physical manifestations of disorder. And then when people are thinking about committing a disorderly act, they look out at their physical environment and they don't think they can get away with it or that it's the appropriate thing to do anymore. Or just reduces the tendency to do it. Or reduces yeah. the tendency to do it. And you multiply that across lots of people and all of a sudden you get a huge change. In our setting, what we're thinking about is there are small, inexpensive things you can do which dramatically shift some element of the calculus of the individual civilian who's thinking about sharing information about insurgents or rebels. And then when you do that, all of a sudden, the rebels understanding that that change has happened are much more careful about what they're doing, and you get a sudden reduction in violence. And it's not about suddenly taking a large number of people off the battlefield or suddenly getting a large number of people to defect. It's about the people who are producing violence realizing that the level at which they were doing it before is no longer sustainable. And the, the, really the best example of this um, that we have in some sense comes from the build-out of the cell phone network in Iraq. So in Iraq, one thing that happens between 2003 and 2009 is the cellular communication network basically gets built out over the whole country. And the telecommunications providers are putting up infrastructure throughout the war relatively unaffected uh, by combat for various reasons having to do with how you can site towers and how concentrated on main roads much of the conflict in Iraq was. What happens when they put in cell phone coverage over an area for the first time is you see this really dramatic reduction in violence in that area, but not in areas where they're adding additional coverage. So it's not about the violence dropping because all of a sudden like people want cell phones or, and that somehow changed the environment. What we think is going on is when cell phone coverage comes in, all of a sudden the people living in that territory have access to the ability to phone in tips. Hmm. So it's a very low-risk, low-cost way to share information about rebel activity that they It reduces like. the control of the insurgents over information. Exactly, exactly. And so you get that. And so putting in one of these towers, um, depending on whether you had to build a new tower or just put an antenna up on a building, costs between $20,000 and $200,000. Really low-cost intervention. Yeah. And you get this huge reduction in violence. And it's because people are interacting in this equilibrium where previously, because it was very risky for people to communicate with the U.S. and the Iraqi government, the rebels were able to control that flow of information. Once you put in the cell phone tower and you break that control, all of a sudden information is much easier to flow, and then the insurgents back off their operations because they're much more likely now to get caught if they're engaging in things because someone can call in a tip at low risk. So these environments that you're describing are highly complex. I mean, there's so much going on here. Um, and in the title of your book, you have this, this term, big data. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so what's the, what's the story that you tell regarding how to make sense of this complexity? How to identify these key points that you're describing of, of, uh, creating a virtuous cycle? Because there's, there, inevitably, there will be a lot of things going on that might not generate those kinds of results. Right. So let me step back for a second and talk about the term big data. So I think you can think about big data as meaning two things. 
One is it is data that is sufficiently large that you can't manage it on a desktop. So you need to use servers and higher-end computing infrastructure, and so it's just a pain to work with because of the volume. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about when we say big data is data which records human interactions at a fine level of detail. And so once you have that fine-grained data, then you can do something which uh, is, not, is not like a fundamentally new thing in social science or policy evaluation, but which can be applied many more places now, which is you can learn the fine details of an interaction and then figure out what is it that isolates variance in only one factor which you think matters. Like violence against the police or something. So right? violence against the police might be the outcome, and then the factor which you think might matter might be, say, how the houses look. Okay. And so, for example, a thing that you can do, Ed Glazer, um, who studies um, the economics of housing, has a great paper that does this, is you can now use Google Street View to, for any given street in the United States, say, how nice do the houses look on that street? And you can do this, uh, the fact that they have a time slider now lets you do this over time. So now what you could do is you could match up small changes in how a given street looks with crime data That's from that street. And so once you have the ability to do that, what you can do is what, what we did in, you know, in, the, in, the, in all the papers that we talk about in the book, and we, we bring in information from more than 60 peer-reviewed papers there, is you learn the details of an interaction by spending time with people who are in that interaction. So if that's in Afghanistan, you spend time with people in the fight or talking to people who are in the fight. And you learn what led to changes in the amount of aid being spent or what led to changes in the communications infrastructure or the treatment of civilians. And then you use the fact that you have this fine-grained data to zoom in on where do you get a change in one factor and not others. So you create these as-if experiments. And then you learn lots of little facts with a lot of confidence. And the reason then you have to put it or at least we had to put it in a book, is what you're trying to do is step back then and look at this fact pattern which you've established over a number of years and say, what's the story that is most consistent with that fact pattern? And fundamentally, like that's what we're, we're doing in the book. And I think when we think about how do you leverage big data to kind of answer your question, what you, need to, what you should be thinking about is building up those fact patterns and then step back and go back to the 10,000-foot view, get your head out of the little details of the data, and say, what's the overall pattern? And the thing that that does for you, which is really important and I think underappreciated in um, a fair number of social sciences, although it's, it's, the situation's getting better, is we have this real problem with what we call external validity, which in plain English is, did the thing I learned there apply here? Or will the thing I learned there apply here? And if you want to ask that question, that is a question which requires you to have looked at the thing there in many places. And if you see the same pattern in many, many places, then you can say with a lot of confidence, yes, I think it will apply here. And so then policies predicated on that understanding of the interaction are probably a good idea in the place you're working now. And so big data lets you do that for lots of interactions, which previously you could not do it for. And technology, I mean, your Google, uh, mm -hmm. Google Maps example is great. So how technology is allowing us to quantify in some way things that we just couldn't, couldn't quantify before. For sure. So, so 
you mentioned external validity as this sort of the generalizability of the result, right? As a as a challenge. What else are you worried about when you're when you're doing this work? What are the other pitfalls? So, I think the biggest other pitfall is finding spurious correlations. So finding relationships which don't mean what you think they mean. Because you're looking at so many relationships, some will just occur randomly. Exactly. Some will just occur randomly, or sometimes you will see relationships which don't mean what you think they mean. And so, you know, for example, people talk, I talk a lot when we do um, training courses for more senior uh, executives, we talk a lot about the fact that ice cream sales and uh, drownings are highly correlated. Yeah. And people will sometimes say, oh, that's just because when it's hot, people go to the swimming pool and they eat ice cream. And it's, it's not. It's because they eat ice cream and they cramp up and then they die in the pool. Um, I mean, obviously not, right? But, <laughs> but um, when you think about having so much data, the opportunity to find relationships which, for which you can tell a causal story, but which don't really reflect a causal relationship, is just vast. And you see this all the time in, for example, food science. Right, where you've heard, you know, this is good for you, or that's good for you, or that now this thing isn't good for you in this population or that population. And a lot of that's just healthy user bias. Yeah, health, <laughs> like, health, health, totally. Like people who eat kale are probably doing yoga and exercise, and it's got nothing to do with kale. Exactly, know? exactly. Or, or as, in, um, as in Bolinas, California, they eat so much kale that they start to uh, develop unhealthy concentrations of thorium in their body. Oh, really? I didn't even, uh, yeah, yeah, that's there's, interesting. There's, there's a fun story about that. Um, <laughs> But I think this is where big data needs theory. Yeah. So, you know, you have this massive data. You can find all kinds of relationships. And part of sorting out the ones that are valid from the ones that aren't has to come from your understanding of the world and the stories that you want to tell about the world. And you can call that theory or something. You can come up with fancier names for it. But fundamentally, you have to look at the relationships and say, okay, I think these are probably real, given all the other things I know about the world, and these are not. And one thing I've seen many times in working on uh, projects in industry and with the government is that's a skill which comes out of history and social science and the, and the humanities and it's kind of softer sciences. Um, and you often find the people who are the best at doing the fine technical details are in some ways like the most likely to take those spurious correlations as being meaningful because just by dint of training, they haven't, um, they haven't been brought up to think critically about what the data are revealing. Yeah, the, you know, this, this challenge of um, understanding the, the bigger picture, the story, that, the contradictions that are possible in, in reality, human beings, we, we actually really love simple stories. I mean, we are, we are suckers for the headline, you know, mm -hmm. so you find a correlation that may be spurious, but, but you can manufacture a, a great story around that. How do you deal with that? Like, what what are what are some mental? Are there some mental habits that you think are useful? I mean, you touched on some of them uh, just now, but you know, what would you recommend to a leader or an executive? You know, to avoid this this problem. Uh, that's a that's a great question. So, um, I think the first thing is when you, someone presents you with a relationship, the first thing you want to ask yourself is, what am I using this relationship for? And I like to divide that into two purposes. One is forecasting events. So do I want to know what's going to happen where next in the world? And then the other is predicting the impact of a policy action or a change. And if what you want to do is forecast events, then correlations are awesome. And all you need to know is that two things are correlated in the world. So if I want to 
um, forecast where there's going to be fires tomorrow, a thing I should do is look for smoke. Now, if I want to create fires, I should not go buy a smoke machine. Mm -hmm. And so you need a different kind of evidence if what you want to do is predict the impact of your policy actions versus forecasting events. So that's like the first thing is, what are you using it for? And the second big thing is if what you want to do is forecast events, remember that uh, establishing a correlation requires variation. And so you have to look for both outcomes on either side of your correlation. So if you want to understand what makes someone a success, you have to look at people who are not successes. If you want to understand what makes for a um, particularly violent militant organization, you have to look at some militant organizations that are not violent. And because if you don't, you don't know what's happening on the other side. And so you don't know if in the other side, the thing that you uh, seems to show up a lot, say, in people who are successful, you don't know if that shows up more or less in the people who didn't make it. And that is such a typical problem with, I would say, popular business books. There's a great mm -hmm. book by Phil Rosenzweig, The Halo Effect. Uh -huh. Probably, I don't know, familiar with it, but he... Yep. It's, it's a beautiful kind of exploration of how awful this analysis of success can be. And he, and he says exactly what you're pointing out. He's like, you cannot put together your sample based on the thing that you're trying to explain. You got you to gotta search more broadly. Um, and when I talk to students here about that, it was, fu it was funny because um, I, I teach a course here that sort of is an intro to methods course. And so we talked about that. And... Their response was, well, that's great, but you know, oftentimes you're dealing with somebody, the, the leader who's requested the mm -hmm. analysis, that does not want to provide you with time or scope to do that work. You know? And so there's almost like a more profound cultural change that we have to precipitate that would help us to recognize the value of what you're saying. I, I think that's true. And look, this is really tempting. So for many years... Um, my graduate students would come to me and they'd tell me some crazy thing that they'd heard from other graduate students about like what it took to succeed as an academic. And I would ask them if the person they were talking to had a job that they wanted. And if not, tell them to ignore the advice. <laughs> and then one of them about four years ago pointed out to me that I was exactly making the mistake that I was warning people against. Um, and so now my advice to them is talk to a couple people who have the jobs that you want and then talk to a couple people who tried to get those jobs and failed and see yeah. if there's a there's a difference there in the things that they did yeah um but it's it's very tempting it's just a it's a, a mode of human cognition i think to your students what i would say is you know one response to the boss hopefully delivered politely is do you want analysis or do you want justification for doing what you're already going to do yeah, unfortunately, the answer <laughs> the answer might be the latter in that case, which which is fine. Like that is a legitimate thing to want as a boss. Yeah. Um, I I think you know where where we get into trouble is we mistake. The, I mean, there are many places we get in trouble, but one mistake is we mistake giving justification for an action with giving analysis. Those are yeah distinct functions. Yeah, and you know we we love to justify the thing that we've already done or that we've already decided to do. I mean, right. that that's the best kind of analysis for us. So just a, a last question. Uh -huh. What attracted you to the study of conflict more broadly? You know, you're obviously a bright guy. You could be working at Goldman Sachs or any number of other places. You know, what brought you into this career that you've chosen for yourself? Um, 
so morbid sense of humor. Um, no, so I, I think the, so the path for me was started with um, realizing, uh, I took some time off college and I lived overseas. I uh, lived in Vietnam. This was back before the embargo was lifted. And some of my friends were like way smarter than me, um, these Vietnamese guys, way smarter than me and had like nothing like the opportunities I had in life just by virtue of like the passport that I carried. Yeah. So I thought I wanted to pay something back and serving uh, in the Navy seemed like a fun way to do that. So that was about the level of thought to that point in my career. And then while I was um, in the in the Navy, I got interested in some of these um, kind of more research-oriented questions about why we were fighting the kinds of fights we were fighting and what was going on under the hood in those fights and made a choice to kind of branch off and, and go to graduate school when I left active duty. Um, when was that, that you left uh, active duty? So this was, this was in 2002. And this was, this was really because while I felt like I was like a pretty good, a pretty good ship driver and I was, I was okay as a leader, um, I felt like I'd probably be pretty good as a thinker. And so made that, made that transition. And um, one of the first things, one of the last things I had done on active duty was working on uh, counterterrorism planning. And when I was doing that, there was all this uh, hate and discontent and strife and also bureaucracy in the people that we were targeting. And the discourse in 2002 and 2003 and 2004 about uh, Islamist terrorist organizations was not about that. It was about how they were these loosely organized networks and how they were super capable and that this ideology bound people together. And that was like not at all what my I had seen. And so I started doing some research and writing on terrorist organizations historically and how they organized. And um, people liked it, so I wrote more on it. Um, and then got access to a whole bunch of internal documents from terrorist groups that were stored in something called the U.S. government's Harmony Database, which is basically like all the documents the U.S. has picked up on the battlefield fighting terrorist and insurgent groups back to 1998, basically. And you look at that stuff, and it, it, for some groups, not all, it was like the movie Office Space, but with suicide vests. Like, there's just, like, this huge amount of stupid bureaucracy and silly infighting and petty We need a receipt fights. for that trip. Literally. You, you won't be reimbursed without a receipt. There, <laughs> there, there is literally, you joke, there's literally an email, there's literally a chain um, of correspondence between uh, Abu Hafs al-Masri, who is al-Qaeda's military chief, and a man named Abu Kabab, who ran uh, another set of training camps in Afghanistan, in which Hafs writes to Kabab saying, you did not submit your receipts from taking your family home, and you're obligated to do so. <laughs> Um, and we know this because yeah. Haas kept in his house in Kandahar a box with 275 CDs in it that was his work correspondence going back to 1993. And when uh, the U.S. dropped a bomb on his residence, killing him during the invasion of Afghanistan, and when they did the site exploitation, they got the CDs. And so we literally see him and Masri, uh, or him and Abu Kabab, fighting over receipts and a number of other things. So... So that got me just really interested in the organization of violent groups. And so worked on that for a while. And then as um, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were heating up, I felt like, um, you know, given my background and the skills that I developed uh, in research, I needed to do something as practical as I could to try and help out making policy. Awesome. That's a fascinating story. 
So last point, aside from obviously recommending totally. to our listeners that they read Small Wars, Big Data, The Information Revolution and Modern Conflict, pick it up from Princeton University Press, available on Amazon and anywhere where fine books are sold. <laughs> uh, do you have a book recommendation for our listeners? It could be anything. I mean, just a book that you really like. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So the, the one I'm recommending to my students right now, and which I think is a, is a great book, for anyone interested in fiction which enlightens current geopolitical affairs, is uh, Jamil Ahmed's The Wandering Falcon. So this is a, a book that's written by a Pakistani civil servant uh, in early in his career reflecting on the populations that he is working with when he's assigned as a political agent in the, um, uh, in the frontier areas of Pakistan. And uh, it follows one uh, Pashtun... Uh, man through his illegitimate conception and what happens to his parents and then follows uh, this this boy as he grows into a man who's who's known as the Wandering Falcon, um, basically through different points in his life. And it is a wonderful illustration both of the culture along the Afghan-Pakistan frontier and the reasons why that area is so challenging to govern. Yeah. Um, and it's beautifully written and has a fantastic backstory, uh, which your listeners should discover for themselves. And so just as a, as a piece of fiction, which gives you new insight into current geopolitical issues, uh, I think it's just fantastic. Great recommendation, Jake. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome, Andrew. And listeners, thanks for joining us. And we hope you'll join us next time on A Better Piece, The War Room Podcast. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.